Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Welcome to the Saishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. This week's big winner is China's already big car-hailing app, Didi Chuxing, which closed a new financing round, raising $5.5 billion and pushing up its valuation to $50 billion. After Uber bowed out of the China market fray, Didi has dominated. But its ambition is not limited to China. It has cast its eyes on overseas markets, ranging from California to Brazil. Among its investors are homegrown internet giants Tencent and Alibaba, as well as foreign investors, including Silver Lake and SoftBank. A company not so happy right now is insurance giant Anbang, which has reported a net cash outflow of $830 million U.S. million in the first quarter, due to its life insurance and property insurance subsidiaries. You might remember Anbang for its failed $14 billion bid to buy Starwood Hotels last year. The huge outflow means the insurance company paid more to clients making claims or who canceled their policies than the income earned from premiums. This may mean a shrinking war chest for its aggressive mergers and acquisitions overseas. Behind that is rule tightening at home. Since September, China's insurance regulators have reined in the booming market, and a main target is a very popular product called universal life insurance. Universal life insurance products offer high annual returns, so they generate huge cash reserves for insurers to buy companies overseas. But this has led to problems with cash flow and liquidity management, resulting in the regulatory crackdown. This time, it's not just the regulators who are warning against financial risks. The big boss has spoken to Xi Jinping, hosted a study session at the Politburo this week on how to protect national financial security. Xi listed six tasks, ranging from the old pledges of increasing financial reform and company governance to slightly new pledges of enhancing financial regulation and containing risk points. His comments echoed the ongoing storm in the financial sector about reducing systemic risks and rooting out graft. Our dear listeners will recall that downfalls of financial regulators have been covered in, well, both 
previous episodes of the Taishin Cynical Business Brief podcast. This week is no exception. A 52-year-old expert named Feng Xiaoshu, who used to sit on the review board at the Shenzhen Stock Exchange and did for three years, was found to have pocketed 248 million RMB by investing in pre-IPO firms. Now, guess what his job was at the board? To approve companies that can go IPO. So, no wonder every company wanted to slip him some shares before they listed. He was fined 500 million RMB by the Securities Commission and given a lifetime ban on the securities market. And that's it? And last but not least, mainland Chinese audiences will soon be able to watch some Netflix shows in sync with their American counterparts as Netflix announced this week a licensing agreement with Chinese distributor iQiyi. So what hit shows are set to debut first in China? First up will be Black Mirror, Stranger Things, and Mindhunter. Caixin reporter Coco Feng had a piece out this week about how wayward drones caused the delay of over 100 commercial flights at Chengdu's Shangliu International Airport. We spoke with her about this situation. So drones. Drones have apparently caused over 100 flight delays or rerouting uh, within a week now just due to airspace violations by these things. What is the story here? So last week, several drones within a week have penetrated into the air control space in Sichuan province, which is in southwestern China, and have caused you know more than 100 passenger flights to change their routes, and more than tens of thousands of passengers have been stranded in the airport, causing a lot of chaos. And I think that's the tension between the emerging industry and the regulation. Yeah, yeah, so tell us a little more about that. I mean, it sounds like the drones in China are an area which is, well, not quite under remote control. Drones have been around for decades, but in recent years, many, many startup companies and technology companies have started to develop affordable drones to consumers. So a lot of people have noticed that there are more drones in the air than before, and a lot of ordinary people are playing with it. The thing is that regulators, not only in China, but also in other countries, have not kept up with the fast-growing industry. And the drones, they can cause a lot of accidents, like this one. Just this year, in February, an Air France flight, which was about to land in Washington, and the pilot of the flight found a drone just 100 feet above the craft. It was really dangerous. And the, the pilot said the experience can shake you up. Regulators have actually started to regulate this. Well, I guess this is a to-be-continued story. We'll see how China regulates this wily space. Thanks, Coco. Also in this week's news, the shared workspace space in China has seen a major merger this week, and we spoke with Caixin editor Doug Young about this. So, Doug, two Chinese companies, UR Work or Your Work and Hongtai New Space, are merging, uh, trying to join forces to dominate the Chinese shared workspace sector. Uh, step back and, and tell us what the whole field looks like. Well, the story is these are sort of the hot thing these days. Very comfortable, sort of big warehouse style spaces. They'll have things like a gym, and then they'll have a, a big open area, usually with a coffee bar, often free coffee. Just lots of cool, comfortable meeting spaces and then lots of options for individual entrepreneurs. For example, if you're just a one-man shop, you can rent a desk. And then even within a desk, you can rent a hot desk where each time you come, it's a different desk, whatever's open. Or you can rent a dedicated desk for a little more. 
Or if you're feeling really rich, you can actually rent an office, which is a, probably a small office. But the, the, the prices for these things are all very reasonable. Some people like it because it encourages networking. It, it has a lot of flexibility built into it. If you want to get another hot desk, you have somebody coming in for a short-term project. That's good. If you have clients coming in for meetings, you take them to the coffee bar. They've also got meeting rooms. You know, it's, it's just a very flexible and pleasant work environment. So what's going on here in China with this deal in particular? So the deal that we're seeing is uh, two of the big Chinese companies in this space, no pun intended, are merging. And their merger has created something like a $1.5 billion company. We're seeing here what we see, it seems like, in a lot of areas. The Chinese companies are sort of following or copying a concept that was made popular in the West. We saw it with Airbnb, and then we got this local company called Tuja, which is doing the same thing. And then the one where we saw it also was with Uber, and then the local company called Didi ended up taking over the market and actually buying out Uber in China. So in this case, the company that sort of makes a lot of headlines these days is called WeWork, and they're a U.S. company, and they do, that's their thing, is opening these creative, big, very flexible office spaces. And, and in fact, WeWork has just come to China in the last year. They raised a lot of money from Chinese investors. One of them was Jinjiang. I think altogether they raised about 800 million U.S. So they're getting aggressive in China. And this is one of the homegrown Chinese versions of it, which apparently has a lot of locations and is talking about its own global expansion, going to New York and Singapore and a few other places. So, Doug, how do you see this actually playing out then in China? We can take a few of the uh, previous cases as examples. In, in the case of Didi and Uber, Didi ended up trouncing Uber in China. But I think there, Didi also had the advantage of they were the first arrival. They, they had two years in the market, I think, before Uber came. In this case, WeWork is just arriving, but I don't think these other two companies have been doing it very long either. With Airbnb and Tuja, we still have yet to see. China does tend to favor homegrown companies. There's just no question about that. So whether or not they'll be biased against WeWork or whether this new company will get any advantages, any, any home field advantage, sort of remains to be seen. Based on what we've seen in the past, foreign companies don't do that well in these new economy spaces when they compete against Chinese rivals. But then again, the Chinese don't seem to ever do very well outside of China. So if we're going to look at the past as an indicator... I would say maybe WeWork has the deck a little bit stacked against it just because this is China, but WeWork probably doesn't have to worry too much about competition from this new company outside of China, at least not for now. And now for a selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll look at the lawsuit being filed by a Hong Kong hedge fund manager against Guo Wengui, the Chinese billionaire who's been on the lam and dishing dirt about the Chinese leadership. We'll hear about a bankrupt American solar company that's brought a case against Chinese solar manufacturers that could result in new punitive tariffs. And we'll see how people in quake-prone Yunnan province are worried that rushed construction jobs on new housing could mean seismically unsafe buildings when the next big one strikes. From People, April 25th, 2017. Hong Kong hedge fund files $88 million lawsuit against elusive businessman Guo Wengui. 
、百里征信、王端、庄巧维 and 王玉泉。New York. A hedge fund company has filed a lawsuit against controversial Chinese businessman Guo Wenhui in New York, claiming that the elusive real estate tycoon owes it eighty-eight million dollars due to a quote straightforward breach of contract case unquote. Guo, also known as Miles Kwok, fled China in 2014, soon before the Communist Party's graft fighters detained his close associate Ma Jian, a former national security official who remains under investigation for suspected corruption. Interpol recently issued a red notice for Guo. A red notice is a request to locate and provisionally arrest an individual pending extradition. It's not an international arrest warrant, according to the Interpol website. Pacific Alliance Asia Opportunity Fund (LP) or PAX, an investment fund company, said it has been trying for years to get repayment of a loan borrowed in 2008 by Spirit Charter, a company that Guo controlled. The $30 million loan has grown to approximately $88 million after nine years as interest is accrued. The hedge fund claimed in the lawsuit. The lawsuit claims that Guo personally guaranteed the debt's repayment, but has repeatedly shirked his legal responsibility using various means, ranging from postponing the loan's maturity dates to ignoring PAX's notices regarding the debt. PAX is the main subsidiary of Pacific Alliance Investment Management. Taishin has not been able to reach Guo for comment. The lawsuit, filed on April 18th, was brought against Guo before the State Supreme Court of New York on grounds that he has quote, engaged in a continuous and systematic course of doing business in New York and is domiciled in the state. Unquote, according to a court document Caixin has seen. A previous attempt by PAX to secure the debt's repayment through judiciary procedures failed, even though it won that court case. Shiny Times Holdings Limited, a British Virgin Islands registered shell firm which had replaced Spirit Charter as the borrower, was liquidated in 2016 under court order to repay the debt it owed. But the firm was insolvent at the time of the liquidation, and PAX said it was unable to collect any of the money it claims it is owed. PAX said in its lawsuit that Guo. Bought his current residence on the 18th floor of the Sherry Netherland Hotel in the city in 2015 for 67.5 million dollars, and that he also maintains offices at 767 Fifth Avenue for a Delaware company he owns. The 50-year-old Guo, the controlling shareholder in Beijing Zenith Holdings and Beijing Pangu Investment, was listed by Huruan Wealth Report as the 74th richest Chinese in 2014, with 15.5 billion yuan in personal assets. A 25-minute video surfaced online last week showing Ma saying he used his position and power to benefit Guo's business and took over 60 million yuan in bribes paid by Guo. It is not clear when the video was produced, in which Ma was wearing a light puffer jacket. Ma's case was handed over to prosecutors in February. Guo also has close ties to Zhang Yue, who is the head of the Political and Legal Affairs Committee in the Northeast Province of Hebei. When the graft probe of him began last April, Zhang went on trial last week at the Intermediate Court of Changzhou City, Jiangsu Province, for allegedly taking bribes worth 158 million yuan. A Caixin report published in March 2015 revealed how Guo, Ma, and Zhang formed a close alliance using security and legal power to meddle in business deals. In response to Guo's subsequent actions attacking Caixin, Caixin has filed lawsuits against Guo and his companies in Beijing 
and in Hong Kong, accusing him of fabricating and disseminating untrue information. From Business and Tech, April 27, 2017. Bankrupt U.S. solar firm turns up heat on Chinese imports by Yang Ge, Beijing. Bankrupt solar panel maker Suniva Inc. has complained to the U.S. International Trade Commission, ITC, about allegedly unfair competition from imports, raising the prospect of new anti-dumping tariffs against products from China and other countries. Under existing rules, the ITC will complete the injury phase of its investigation within 120 days of receiving the complaint, according to a Wednesday announcement on its website that disclosed its receiving Suniva's complaint. The commission may recommend to the president an increase in a duty, imposition of a quota, imposition of a tariff rate quota, trade adjustment assistance, or any combination of such actions, the ITC said in a statement. Suniva lodged the complaint after filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection last week, becoming the latest victim of protracted oversupply in the global solar panel sector. Under the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, Chapter 11 protection frees a company from the threat of creditors' lawsuits while it reorganizes its finances, but a majority of the company's creditors must then accept the company's reorganization plan. Many blame the solar panel oversupply on a big buildup in China, whose industry now supplies more than half the world's products. Many manufacturers outside China say the global industry's glut is due in no small part to preferential policies from Beijing and local Chinese governments, which often provide support to producers in the form of policies like low-interest loans and cheap land for manufacturing. The case of Suniva dramatically demonstrates that the U.S. solar manufacturing industry still suffers from unfair trade, said Solar World, one of the most vocal critics of China's industry. In particular, highly subsidized Chinese companies as well as other producers are globally dumping their products, forcing competitors to take losses, lay off workers, and exit the market. Following previous complaints, both the U.S. and E.U. imposed punitive sanctions on Chinese solar panels. As a result of such penalties, China's solar panel exports dropped 10% last year, their first decline since 2013. That punitive action prompted many Chinese producers to set up factories outside the country to make panels that were exempt from the tariffs. But a potential new anti-dumping rule in the Suniva case would also affect those panels. Despite the possibility of new punitive tariffs, one insider close to the Chinese industry said the threat may be less now than it was when the U.S. imposed its original penalties five years ago. That's because many weaker players have already closed, and the solar lobby, which likes low panel prices created by stiff competition, has gained strength over the period, he said. The argument is shifting. Most politicians have accepted that solar manufacturing jobs are not coming back to Europe and the U.S., he said. Cheap Chinese panels help lower energy costs, meet carbon goals, and generate hundreds of thousands of downstream jobs. From Environment, April 23, 2017. Shoddy construction worries leave Yunnan quake survivors jittery. By Shen Fan and Li Sijia. Chen Yong looks nervously at the large cracks in the walls of his new concrete house, which was plagued by leaks and cracks even before the construction was finished and he moved in late last year. After a 4.9 magnitude earthquake struck his home county of Ludian in Yunnan province on February 8th, the cracks spread and deepened. 
The house is one of over 1,000 identical units built after a 6.5 magnitude earthquake rocked the region on August 3, 2014, killing more than 600 people and damaging over 80,000 buildings. The building's lack of earthquake resistance is believed to be the main reason for the loss of life. While Chen, 33, survived, his adobe house was completely destroyed. Chen and his neighbors now worry that their homes, subsidized and commissioned by the local government, will be just as vulnerable, a frightening prospect in this quake-prone region. The government and the construction companies maintain that the quality issues are minor and fixable and have not affected the home's ability to withstand earthquakes. But to date, no third-party quality assessment of the buildings has been conducted. Villagers believe rushed construction, subpar materials, and unregulated contracting are to blame. Whether the issues are serious enough to threaten the structural safety of the homes is still unclear. After the 2014 quake, residents were left living in temporary tents, and Chen's local government in Ludian's Lungtoshan township was eager to get people into earthquake-resistant homes as quickly as possible. Originally, the plan was to give subsidies to the Lungtoshan villagers to rebuild the homes themselves, but it was difficult for the residents to find laborers, and the shipping of materials was slow. So in September 2015, the local government took back control of the project, and two provincial state-owned construction companies were hired through a tendering process to build just over 1,000 two- to three-story residential units. Each unit cost 200,000 yuan, about $29,000, with the government subsidizing each one by 40,000 to 50,000 yuan. Chen was forced to borrow money from friends and relatives and take on odd jobs to cover the costs of the new home. Looking at his house now, he sighs and says, I spent all that money and the house is falling apart. The two companies, Yunnan Construction Engineering Group Company Limited, or YCE, and the 14th Metallurgical Construction Corporation of China Non-Ferrous Metal Industry, were highly regarded in their field. The former ranked 298th on a 2016 list of the country's top 500 companies and was praised for its active involvement in relief efforts after the August earthquake. Both companies had won numerous national awards for their work and had completed countless large-scale projects both at home and abroad. Last April, the two companies, together with the Southwest Transportation Construction Group Company Limited, restructured and merged to form the Yunnan Construction Investment Holding Group Company Limited. YCE was responsible for rebuilding 944 homes in Lungtoshan, including Chen's, as well as schools, hospitals, and other public buildings in the township. Metallurgical construction was responsible for 138 homes in the township's old town area, when Caixin visited the area last month, fewer than 10 of the 138 families had moved into their new homes. One woman, surnamed Wang, who had decided to move in, was overwhelmed with the repairs the house needed. Just look at the moldy pipes in my bathroom, she complained to one of the construction workers. There was no electricity on the second floor of her father's house, and the bathroom had leaks, she told Caixin. It's these types of problems that have prevented the other villagers from moving in, she said. Issues like leaky pipes are a nuisance, but the crux of their fears is earthquake safety, the residents said. Cracks or superficial repairs were visible on the walls of nearly all the homes Saishin visited and on the wall of a local kindergarten or preschool. 
According to the rebuilding contract between the villagers and the Lungtoshan government, the buildings met seismic precautionary standards for regions classified as Level 8 on the National Seismic Intensity Scale, which measures earthquake intensity based partially on subjective factors like human perception and damage to buildings. According to these standards, Ludian's seismic intensity is classified as Level 7, one degree less. The standards were tightened following the devastating Wunchuan earthquake of 2008 in bordering Sichuan province where more than 69,000 people died and 4.8 million were left homeless. While the scale also takes into account objective measures of horizontal motion on the ground, it isn't clear to residents how strong an earthquake their homes could withstand. We are terrified, one resident who declined to be named told Saixin. If a relatively small earthquake can do this much damage, what will happen when a bigger one strikes? The visible defects aren't the only thing stoking fears of quality issues in the township. The construction proceeded at breakneck speed. According to a November 2015 report in the Yunnan Daily, work that was originally designed to be completed in six months got done in less than 100 days. Workers were on site 24 hours a day. At the height of construction, about 6,000 workers were on site, their makeshift barracks stretching an entire kilometer along the nearby Lungquan River. A concrete manufacturer in Ludian who declined to be named told Saixin that when some of the houses were built, the unhardened concrete should have been watered to ensure its proper solidification during the hot weather. The fact that time was tight and this step was overlooked could have affected the quality of some of the buildings. Because the houses were built successively, some were started and finished before others, some houses whose construction began closer to the deadline were even more rushed being built in about two months, according to a worker in charge of materials transport. In the rush, concrete templates that should have been left in for 15 days were sometimes removed after as little as two, he said. Company representatives rejected these claims, saying no templates were removed within 10 days. Another point of contention between the villagers and those constructing their homes is the issue of subcontracting, which villagers said led to the hiring of unvetted temporary workers. The construction companies vehemently deny that any illicit subcontracting occurred. According to Lungtoshan Mayor Li Changpu, some quality issues are inevitable after building so many homes in just three months. But he said that after repairs, which began almost immediately after the move-in date and are still ongoing, 80% of residents could accept the conditions. Those who are still not satisfied have unreasonably high expectations, he told Saixin. Ma Ningjiang, an executive at Metallurgical Construction and former head of the rebuilding project, told Saixin that some villagers were even damaging their new homes deliberately and demanding compensation. Li and the local government maintain that the quality issues are the responsibility of the construction companies. They said that the pace of work has been slow, leading to frustration among villagers. The companies reject the accusation that their repair work has been behind schedule and say that the quality issues are within the scope of common quality problems allowed for under China's construction law. What the government and the construction companies do agree on is that the problems have not affected the building's structural integrity or ability to withstand earthquakes. Lee said experts from both YCE and Zhaotong city government have evaluated the homes. Both evaluations concluded that there was no structural damage or impact on shock resistance. But no independent evaluation has been conducted.
According to local villagers, YCE and the local government had agreed to a third-party evaluation, but with the stipulation that if no significant issues were found, the villagers would have to pay the roughly 10,000 yuan per home appraisal fee themselves. Balking at the risk of the steep expense, the villagers abandoned the idea. For now, Chen and his neighbors can only hope it won't take another earthquake to confirm their fears. That's this week's show, and thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll give us a listen every week and help spread the word. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com. Uh, I'd love to get your feedback. The Caixin Syndicate Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Lee Sin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn. We are now in our eighth year, and we have a terrific lineup of shows. And be sure to follow the news from China daily at SubChina through our free email newsletter, our smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. Take care.